Uh, If you have a Bible with you this morning, you can turn to Genesis chapter 50. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14, and then verses 22 through 26. And if you don't have a Bible, you can turn to the section in your worship guide that has the passage printed for you. Or you could also find Genesis 50 on page 43 of the Bibles and the Purex in front of you. About three, we- three years ago, we started this series on Genesis, a little over three years ago, actually. And we've taken breaks at times over the last three years, but for the past few weeks, we've been gradually moving toward our conclusion, which we're finally arriving at today. At City Church, even throughout our worship guide, you'll see that our service is broken down into four parts, creation, fall, redemption, and renewal. We believe that those are the four main parts of the story of God, and what we've seen as we've gone through the book of Genesis is that there are hints of each of those parts of God's story already in this first book of the Bible. We started off in Genesis 1 and 2, where we saw the creation story. We see that God creates everything to be glorious and whole, and that he creates humanity to live in community with him, to be his image bearers on earth. And then we arrive at Genesis 3, where we see the introduction of the fall as humanity rebels against God. But we also see the introduction of God's plan for redemption and renewal in Genesis 3, as he announces that he is going to send a savior who will stamp and bruise, on the, bruise the head of the serpent. And so throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, we see these two themes playing out. We see that humanity makes more and more wicked decisions. They become more and more sinful. And yet, at the same time, God remains faithful. He continues to choose people for himself. He continues to choose for himself a people who will work out his plans to fulfill his promise for redemption. And then, as we arrive at the conclusion of Genesis, what we find is that the story is still not resolved. God has promised to gather a people for himself and to bless them. He's promised to provide land for them. He's promised to send a savior to redeem humanity from their sinfulness. But at the end of Genesis, the Israelites remain in Egypt. They haven't made it to this promised land yet. And the Savior has not yet arrived. So at the end of Genesis, what we find is that there's still plenty of unfinished business, but there's also still hope. So let's take a look at this passage this morning. Let's look at Genesis 50. I'll read 1 through 14 first, and then we'll jump down to 22 through 26. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him, and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, Please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh the elders of his household, and the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, horsemen, uh, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. 
When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And then jumping down to verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's take a minute and pray as we prepare to look at this passage together. Father, I thank you for gathering us together this morning to hear your word. And I ask that as we hear your word, as we look at this situation that the Israelites find themselves in, this seemingly hopeless situation, this situation where it seems that you have not delivered on your promises, that you would fill us with hope as we look at this passage, that you would allow us to look at this story of a time where your promises were not yet fulfilled to the Israelites, and you would give us confidence that you will fulfill our prom- your promises to us. Father, I ask that you would encourage us this morning, that you would give us a vision for how you want to use us in our city and in our neighborhoods and in our families, and that you would give us courage to imagine what your creation would look like renewed and to be a part of the work to renew your creation. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week on Tuesday, we met for our April midweek gathering. Each week throughout our community, we have five community groups that meet. We have three in Wilmington, one in Kennett Square, and one in Newark. But once a month, all five of those community groups come together in the middle of the week for a gathering here at the PAC, which we creatively refer to as midweek gathering. So that took place this past week. I should say, if you're not a member of a community group, you can still attend. You don't have to be a member of a community group to join us for that, and I would encourage you to join us. But also, if you're not a member of a community group, I would encourage you to join a community group. And you can find more information about them at the back of your worship guide if you have some questions about it. So this year, as we gather for Midweek Gathering, we begin each month by watching a video from a series called For the Life of the World. And then we break up into smaller groups to discuss the topic of the video. This past week, our topic was justice. And so when we split up into smaller groups, we began with a question. Where do you see areas of injustice or disorder in our surrounding community? If you take a minute to think about that right now, it's probably not very difficult to come up with some answers. Again, the question is, where do you see areas of injustice or disorder in our surrounding community? 
Maybe when you hear that question, you think of some of the answers we discussed on Tuesday. We talked about things like other students cheating or stealing at school, economic disparity, racial inequality. It's not too difficult for us to come up with examples of where things are broken in our culture. And maybe we can even come up with some global examples. Maybe you think of news stories that you've heard over the past few weeks, and you can think of things that are happening abroad that represent injustice and disorder. But you may also be able to come up with examples from your own personal life. I mean, we see injustice in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods. Maybe for some of us, injustice within our very own homes is even a part of our stories. It isn't difficult for us to come up with examples of where things are broken in our society. But our next question that we talked about this Tuesday evening maybe would be a little bit more difficult for us to come up with answers to. The question is, what would it take to address those issues? Now, there are a couple of possible different angles you could come at as you think about that question. Maybe what jumps to your mind immediately are large policy changes that need to be made by our government. Or maybe it's systemic changes in our society that need to be changed so that people have more access to opportunity. But maybe what comes to your mind are small day-to-day -day changes that you as an individual could make to impact the people around you. And even as we think about this question from a superficial level, maybe we find it somewhat easy to come up with some answers. Maybe some things immediately come to mind, but what if you really take a minute and think about what it would look like to implement those answers that come to your mind? What influence do you have to impact those large-scale changes that come to mind? What sacrifices would you have to make to make those small day-to-day -day changes that would impact people around you? See, we may find it simple to come up with answers, but when we think about these questions, and then we really begin to think about the first steps to making change, what we find is the same result, whether we're thinking about small changes or big changes. What we often find is that we become overwhelmed just by the very thought of making some of these changes. When we think about the injustice and disorder in the world and we think about how we can change it, we're quick, quick to become hopeless. We can acknowledge that there's immense brokenness in the world around us, but then we also have to acknowledge that more often than not, we have no clue what to do about it. And as we reflect on the book of Genesis, what we find is a very similar story. We find that as the book of Genesis concludes, sinfulness and brokenness and corruption are growing rapidly. What we find is that humanity has become both a very great source and the recipient of immense suffering. What we find is that even our would-be heroes in the book of Genesis are deeply flawed characters who are totally incapable of cleaning up the rapidly spreading mess. One commentator puts it this way. He says, The story of Genesis that began with God creating a beautiful paradise on earth for his creatures ends with Joseph in a coffin in Egypt, waiting, waiting for God to bring his people back to the promised land. Can you relate to that? Have you maybe even experienced that story? The story begins with paradise, and yet it ends with death. Our story begins with perfect wholeness, and yet it, rem it ends with a vivid reminder of brokenness. The story begins with a glorious creation that's full of potential, and yet, as we look at it at this point, it seems to end with hopelessness. 
But yet, we've already acknowledged that there's still hope even in the conclusion of the book of Genesis. So let's look back to our passage this morning as we think about how we're called to respond when we're feeling overwhelmed and hopeless because of the brokenness around us. Let's start off by looking at Jacob one last time in verses 4 through 7. It says, And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If, I now, have, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. Now, what's the significance of Jacob demanding to be buried in Canaan? Well, at this point, Joseph is referring back to a promise that Jacob demands his sons make to him in Genesis 49:29 through 32. He says, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. But Jacob also refers back to Canaan in Genesis 48, verses 3 and 4. He says, And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So, As Jacob is nearing his death, he is connecting his family back to the promises that God made to him. Jacob is reminding himself and his sons of the covenant that God established with Abraham and then with Isaac and then with Jacob as God restates the covenant to him in Genesis 28. As Jacob nears his death, he is reminding himself and his sons of the hope that they have in a promise that God made to them in the past. It may be the case that with me preaching this morning instead of Jason, you would have assumed that there would be no Philadelphia sports team references in the sermon. If you didn't assume that, I at least assumed that would be the case. So imagine how surprised I was when I found that I was wrong about that. From 2003 until 2013, the Philadelphia 76ers fell into a pattern of consistent mediocrity. They made the playoffs about half the time, but they only advanced to the second round one time over the course of those 10 years. And in 2013, they hired a new general manager. His name was Sam Hinkie. If you ask the Sixers fans in the room about him, I'm sure you'll get mixed opinions, and some mixed opinions maybe even from the same person. But soon after Sam Hinkie was hired, he said in an interview, we talk a lot about process, not outcome. And trying to consistently take all the best information you can and consistently make good decisions. Sometimes they work and sometimes they don't, but you reevaluate them all. Now, over time, that quote was developed into a mantra, a mantra that you may be familiar with trust the process. And if you're not familiar with that mantra, it's basically a reminder that although things are not good right now, there's a plan in place for them to get better. Trust the process acted as a promise, in a way. 
It acted as a promise that success was on the way, even when things looked really bad. And the process was not always easy to trust. In fact, it was really difficult to trust at different points in time. At times, trust the process seemed to be more of a cynical joke than a hopeful promise. Trust the process meant watching a team that had consistently won 35 to 40 games per season drop down to winning less than 20 games per season for three consecutive seasons. And in the first season of the process, it meant watching the Sixers tie the NBA record for the most losses in a row. Then over the next two seasons, it meant watching them break that very same record that they had tied the season before. The process was not always enjoyable or pleasant, but when things were going poorly, there was still this reminder of hope. Trust the process. When things were not going well, there remained a promise that things would get better. And if you follow the NBA, you know that this past season, the Sixers did win more than 20 games again. In fact, they've advanced to the second round of the playoffs so far. But for years, they were left to cling to this hope that was based on a promise made in the past. And in that regard, Jacob finds himself in a similar situation as he prepares for death. God makes a promise to Abraham and then to Isaac and eventually to Jacob that he is going to bless him and his family with great land, that he's going to make them into a great nation and that he's going to bless them so that they can bless others. And as Jacob prepares for his death, he finds himself in a land that is not his own. He has no idea when or how God is going to deliver on that promise that he made. Jacob prepares for his death in Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh and not in a land of his own under the rule of God. The promise that God made to him is very clearly not going to be fulfilled in Jacob's lifetime. He's realizing that he's not going to see the realization of the hope that he's clung to throughout his life. And yet, even in his death, he continues to cling to that same hope. By demanding to be buried in Canaan, Jacob is showing that he still has faith that God is going to make good on his promises. A commentator says that Jacob's hope as he's nearing death is not in life after death. He says that he does his dying as he does his living in terms of a promise that is not doubted. And that is enough, even though he doesn't know the form of the fulfillment. As Jacob clings to this promise that God made to him in the past, we also have a promise that's been made to us in the past. In John 14, Jesus promises that he is going to prepare a place for us and that he is going to return for us. And so when we find ourselves in hopeless situations, wondering if things will get better, how things can get better, we're called to look back to this promise that Jesus has made to us. We're called to, rem to remember that he's promised to usher in a kingdom of wholeness, to replace the kingdom of brokenness and suffering that we live in right now. And just as Jacob clung to this promise, when we're feeling overwhelmed by the brokenness around us and within us, we're called to look back and remember God's promises to us. Let's look back at our passage as we continue to think about how we can respond when we're feeling the weight of living in brokenness. Let's now look at Joseph in verses 22 through 26. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. 
Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. As Joseph prepares himself for death, he finds himself in a very similar situation to his father, Jacob. He finds himself in a situation where the promises still have not been fulfilled. Joseph remains in Egypt, waiting for a time when God will call his people to the promised land. He prepares for death with no idea when that time is going to come, but he knows that he's not going to be alive to see it with his own eyes. And his response to that realization begins similarly to Jacob's. He begins by remembering the promise that God made to him and to his family. And he reminds his brothers that God has promised land to them. He doesn't just look back to remember the promise, though. He also looks ahead to the fulfillment of the promise. He tells his brothers that God will lead them. He will visit them and lead them to the promised land. And then he looks ahead to the fulfillment of the promise and makes plans for, for when that time comes, even though he knows he won't be alive for it. He imagines what it's going to look like when God comes to deliver on his promises, and then he makes plans for the time when those promises are fulfilled. One of our priorities at City Church is the creative life, which we define as a life of imagination in which we cultivate hope and beauty in a world of cynicism. Engaging in the creative life means remembering God's promises, imagining what the world looks like when those promises are fulfilled, and then finding ways in our world to cultivate hope and beauty that point back to those promises. In our work, we're called to be motivated by having one creative eye toward the world restored and renewed in fulfillment of God's promises. We're called to look beyond what is and to imagine what could be and what will be as we engage in the world around us. A few years ago, my wife Christina looked at a wall in our house, a perfectly good wall in our house, and imagined what could be. She announced that she wanted to expose the brick on the wall that leads from our living room into our kitchen. And when she announced that, she didn't announce it naively. She knew the work that was involved in exposing brick because shortly before she announced that, we had finished up exposing brick on a smaller wall in our house. But nonetheless, she announced she wanted to see what was behind this drywall. And so we talked about it for a while, and one day she came up from our basement with a mallet and a chisel in her hand <laughs> and went to work to find out what was behind all of the drywall. A few minutes later, it became clear what exactly was going to be involved in this project. It meant removing two layers of drywall with a layer of plaster between them to find the brick behind them. So at that point, we both turned our creative eyes to this wall, I turned my eye to imagine what that wall could be if I patched up the hole she just created in hopes that she would forget all about this project, but her eye remained on the brick behind the wall. And for the next few years, that continued to be the case. I would imagine, oh, I wonder if I could patch that up while she's gone and maybe she'll forget about it. And she would invite friends over and talk about what could be back there and whether they wanted to help with the project. Until finally, a few months ago, she found herself with a break between nursing school and starting her new career. And during those few months, she decided she was going to tackle this project. So one day I came home from work and found that our entire hallway was blocked off by gigantic sheets of plastic, just leaving a narrow passage through to the kitchen that was maybe shoulder width. And then over the next several days, she began the work of clearing off the drywall. 
Each day I would return from work and find that she had pulled off another section of drywall, exposed more of the brick. Day by day, hour by hour, she hammered away and removed all of the drywall. And then once all of the drywall was off of the wall, she went back with a wire brush and went over the entire wall to remove any dust or any other debris that might still be remaining on the wall. And then from there, she tore down all of the plastic, which over the course of the few weeks, I never stepped back behind the plastic, but there were plenty of times where I got really focused on the plastic. I was really frustrated by it, especially if I had to carry something through into the kitchen or back into the living room. I would become frustrated. Why can't I just get through here as I always could? Why is this still up here? That was my main focus while she was doing all of this work. But eventually she pulled the plastic down and then went to work cleaning up her work area and then went to cleaning up the dust that had made it through the rest of the house. And finally, after all of that, she went back and sealed the brick to cover it up. Not to cover it up with drywall, just with sealant. Um, creating the finished product that she had imagined years ago before she ever started this work. Now, when, we first or when she first began the work, we couldn't see the brick that was behind the drywall. We had no clue what the condition of the brick back there would be. We had no idea what the finished product would look like. But she imagined what could be instead of seeing what was. And she used that as her motivation as she worked hour after hour of hard labor. And also, I want to point out at this point before I move on that I was very intentional to say she and her when we're talking about the work because I had no part in the work whatsoever. So I take no credit for it. If you ever come over and see our wall, you can give all of the credit to her. But just as she started imagining what could be on this wall in our house and then worked to make it a reality, we're called to go out into the world and to do the same. We're called to look at the difficult situations around us in our communities and our neighborhoods. And then we're called to look ahead to the day when God's promises to make all things new will be fulfilled. When we're feeling hopeless because we continue to see people in our neighborhoods living in the streets, or when we continue to be jolted by the sound of gunshots as we go about our business during the day, we're called to look forward to the day when God promises to bring us to a place that he's prepared for us and promises to put an end to death. When we feel overwhelmed because we continue to wrestle with that same sin that we can't seem to escape from, we're called to look ahead to the day when God will fulfill his promise to make us new. When we're feeling hopeless because of the brokenness that's around us and within us, we're called to look ahead to the fulfillment of God's promises to find hope. And as we look ahead to their fulfillment, we also get to participate in the fulfillment of those promises by imagining what the world could look like and working to create signs of hope that will point people back to those promises. So what does all of this actually look like in the day today? I mean, we're called to look back to when God made these promises to us. We're called to look ahead to their fulfillment, but what does that mean for how we live on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, there are a couple of things that we can learn as we look at this passage about that question. We'll start off by looking at verses four, or five and six. It says, my father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. This journey that Joseph is asking to take is not a brief journey. Canaan is far away, and he's asking to depart from Egypt for a significant amount of time. But Pharaoh agrees to his request anyway. 
And one commentator points out that Pharaoh doesn't even feel the need to add and return to me at the end of his permission because Joseph has already proven himself to be faithful and trustworthy. When we live in light of the promises of God and when we live in anticipation of their fulfillment, we're able to be more faithful and trustworthy people. And Joseph reveals himself to be faithful just as Pharaoh expected him to be. He goes up to Canaan and buries his father in the land that was promised to him and his family by God. And he has an opportunity to try to stay in this promised land. He's already there. But instead, he recognizes that the time has not yet come for God to deliver this land to his people. And so he returns back to the situation in Egypt that is a vivid reminder that God has not yet fulfilled his promises. And he waits in anticipation of the day when God will lead his people out of Egypt back to the land of Canaan. When we live in light of God's promises, we're able to be faithful and trustworthy because we can trust that God will provide for us and that he'll make things right in his time. And if we think about our passage from last week, verses 15 through 21, we find that Joseph is not only trustworthy and faithful, but he is also able to be a forgiving person because he lives in light of God's promises. In verses 15 to 21, we find that Jacob is dead and Joseph is left with his brothers. He is left with the very same brothers who sold him into slavery, separated him from his family, and convinced his father that he had died. Their fate is finally in his hands. But instead of retaliating against them, he responds with immense grace and forgiveness. He reminds them that he is not in the place of God to execute judgment on them. And he reminds them that although they intended evil for him, God used their evil acts for good. When we live in light of God's promises, we realize that we don't have to seek justice for ourselves because we serve a just God who will execute justice on our behalf. So when we live in light of God's promises, we're able to become a more forgiving people. But maybe as you hear me talking about the signs that we're living in light of God's promises this morning, maybe you find that you're actually growing more hopeless. That as we talk about finding hope in hopeless situations, you're becoming more and more discouraged. Maybe you find that as I talk about being forgiven, forgiving, trustworthy, and faithful people, you're discouraged because you know that those words do not describe you. Maybe you know that even as you sit here at this moment, you're still holding grudges against people. Or maybe if you were totally honest with yourself, you have to admit that you are not a trustworthy person, that you manipulate and use others to get what you want. So you hear this description of what it looks like to live in light of God's promises, and you wonder, how could I ever change that much? How could I ever be that person? Well, if you're feeling more hopeless at this point, let's take a look back to our passage one more time. We've already said that at the end of the book of Genesis, what we find is that the promises still are not fulfilled. There's still a hope that they will be one day, but for now, God's people are living in a situation that seems hopeless. As I said earlier, as I quoted earlier, the story of Genesis that began with God creating a beautiful paradise on earth for his creatures ends with Joseph in a coffin in Egypt, waiting, waiting for God to bring his people back to the promised land. If the story ends here, then not only is there no hope, but it's really not even a good story. The story has begun with paradise, and yet it ends with death. God has made big promises to his people, but he has not followed through yet. But fortunately, there is more to God's story than the book of Genesis, 
And in fact, there's even more to Joseph's story than the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis ends with Joseph making his brothers swear to carry his bones with them to the promised land. And if we jump ahead to Exodus, to the next book in the Bible, what we find is that God does show up and he leads his people to the promised land. And as they're leaving Egypt, we find that Moses takes the bones of Joseph with them. And one commentator points out that as the Israelites make their way to the promised land, they carry both the Ark of the Covenant of the living God and the bones of the dead man, Joseph. And so as they're carrying these two shrines side by side through the desert, it raises the question, how does the Ark of the dead come next to the Ark of the ever-living? This is a question that we find again if we look in the New Testament. At this point in the year, my community group is going through a series called Foundations of Christian Spirituality by Dr. Chris Hall. And he asks a question in one of the lessons. He asks, how can the blessed of God be the cursed of God? See, when Jesus begins his ministry, he begins it to the disciples who have an expectation of what it's going to look like when God's chosen one, when the blessed of God arrives. The expectation is that the blessed of God is supposed to usher in a new era. And in this new era, death is going to be replaced by life. Sickness will be replaced by health. And evil will be replaced by peace. And so when Jesus arrives, he begins to go to work to prove that he is God's chosen one by bringing about those changes. We see that he raises dead people back to life. We see that he heals sick people. We find that he casts evil spirits out of people to give them peace. In Jesus' ministry and in his life, he proves to the disciples that he is, in fact, the blessed of God. But then he tells them that he is going to die by being hung on a cross. And this introduces a huge problem in their expectations. Because the disciples would have known that in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says that any man who is hanged on a tree is cursed by God. So there's now a conflict between who Jesus reveals himself to be in his life and who he reveals himself to be in his death. How can the blessed of God be the cursed of God? And the answer is that only the blessed of God could become the cursed of God and live. See, Jesus comes to earth, he lives a perfect life, and he begins to fulfill God's promises to usher in a new era of health and life and peace. And then he reveals himself to be the blessed of God in his ministry, but then he allows himself to become the cursed of God in his death. He takes the curse for our sin onto himself so that we never have to experience being the cursed of God. Because of our sin and our failure, we deserve to be the cursed of God. But Jesus takes that role in our place. And then he rises again from the grave. The blessed of God became the cursed of God for us in death. But then he rises again and he is alive and well today. So if you find yourself feeling hopeless because you find yourself not to be a trustworthy or forgiving person, then take comfort in the fact that Jesus has taken the curse that you deserve and that he has defeated sin and death. He lives today victorious over your brokenness. He lives today victorious over the brokenness in the world around us. And health and life and peace have already begun to invade this creation just as God promised us. So when we're feeling hopeless and overwhelmed by the brokenness around us, we can look back to the promises that God left us. We can look ahead to the day when those promises will be fulfilled. And we can find hope knowing that our God is a forgiving and trustworthy and faithful God. 
and that he has promised to come back and make all things new. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are faithful, although we are not. I thank you that you are trustworthy when we aren't. God, I thank you that you keep your promises, though we consistently break ours. And I thank you that in spite of our faithlessness, in spite of the fact that we are not trustworthy, that you still invite us to be a part of your plan to make all things new. You invite us to be a part of your plan for redemption, and you invite us to hold on to hope even when we walk ourselves into hopeless situations. I ask that you would help us to have a creative vision for our communities, for our families, and even for our own transformation. You would help us to imagine what things would look like made right by you, and that you would help us to go to work to do that, to bring transformation, to bring signs of hope, to bring reminders that although things are still broken for now, one day your promises will be completely fulfilled. You will make all things new. You'll end the suffering, the brokenness. You'll end our failings, and you'll make us the people that you created us to be. God, I ask that you would help us to cling to that hope as we go forward this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.